Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. Again, thank you for being here, and I am excited to start a new series tonight, and I realize I always say that, and I don't care, because I seriously mean it, that I am excited about this series, because I'm just continually amazed at the power of God's Word, and we do our planning in the fall and whatnot, and things sometimes get moved around, but always, when it comes to our series, it is the timing of the Lord, because it's the Word of the Lord. And it's never been more relevant to us than it is right now. I think we have a renewed appreciation for the security that comes from knowing what the word of the Lord says and being able to apply it to our lives. It's meant to be a source of comfort to us. Jesus told us what the last days would be like so that we would not be afraid. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant to give us perspective that when you see these things happening, Jesus told his followers, then you're going to know to start looking for me to come to prepare. And so tonight we look to the word of God and we are going to shift gears very intentionally away from the heaviness, the weightiness of our last series on loving one another to maybe a more academic approach. We are going to be looking um, at the epistles of Paul, and we are using the handbook on um, the uh, epistles of Paul. By uh, It's published by Word of Flame. We highly recommend it to anybody who wants to uh, study the Word of God more specifically. And the blessing of this series is it comes from an apostolic hermeneutic. The people who wrote it are oneness believers, and so it's very easy. You don't have to sift through things that you don't agree with. It's just the Word of God presented to you as we believe and teach it here. So, for a more theological term, though, we are studying the Pauline epistles. Doesn't that sound astute? does. We're official. It's so real. All right. But one of the things that we try to emphasize when we do series on books of the Bible like this is how much better we understand how much more we can glean from the Word of God when we look to its specific context. These individual uh, verses are powerful in and of themselves, but when we understand different factors such as who wrote them, when and how they were written, how they were even uh, delivered, so to speak, or the time and place which they were written with that in mind, it helps us gain more understanding of what the writer is trying to share with the readers that they had then and to us as the church now. And so we'll begin first by looking at the author himself, the great apostle Paul. And I have no doubt that most of us feel very familiar with him. We hear his name a lot in the church, right? His impact on the church is one that we have experienced personally. He was a champion of the gospel, and his profound understanding of the new birth is something that we have taught here at the Calvary Church since our very beginning. His teachings on the Christian life are ones that we refer to often, specifically in our assimilation classes, because he wrote a lot about the Christian life. 
his teachings on the work of the ministry, the purpose of the church, and the function of the gifts of the Spirit are fundamental to us as an apostolic church. And so I don't think I need to convince you of Paul's impact and the fact that he is a very credible writer as far as we are concerned. But for the purpose of preparing us, okay, and getting us in that theological mindset that we need, to really get into these books the way that we want to, we first recognize that Paul's letters went to seven different churches, which is interesting because John did the same thing. Um, but it also his letters also went to individuals that we will study later. But here are things that we know about the Apostle Paul to begin with, okay? Paul was a Jew, and he was born in Tarsus. He was highly educated. In fact, we know that his teacher was Gamil, who was a very elite teacher of that time, a master, if you will, of the Jewish oral law. And Paul, in fact, makes reference to this in Acts chapter 22 when he says, I am a Jew, born at Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamil according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, Being zealous for God. That's a good word to describe Paul, right? Zealous. As all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. Quite literally. He's not speaking figuratively here. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And so we realize by Paul's own admission, he persecuted the Christian church. He studied, he defended the Jewish faith zealously. Paul was not a part of the original 12 disciples. However, we know that that conversion he had on the road to Damascus redirected his faith and the course of his life completely. It is not an exaggeration for us to say that Paul defended the gospel with the same tenacity with which he had once opposed it. It was his defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ that ultimately cost Paul his life. Paul was a key player in the New Testament church. His influence and his impact is second only to Jesus Christ. Think about that. Paul was a church planner. He was a teacher. He was a preacher. He was a tent maker. He was a mentor to many young ministers, and he was also a prolific writer. Paul alone wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, and he is also the star of the show in the book of Acts. He's indirectly responsible for two of the largest books of the New Testament, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. We know that he had a strong connection to Dr. Luke, and it is highly probable that it was from Paul that Luke got a lot of the details of Paul's life and ministry. Can't you just see Dr. Luke and Paul getting along really well from what we know of them? Two very intelligent, very educated people, very methodical in their approach to their defense of the gospel. I just see them as being cut from the same cloth and having a good time working on the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. I don't know. Just my commentary there. But there are two things that I want to point out to us tonight in application to our own lives from Paul very quickly. 
Number one, I think is obvious that no one is beyond God's reach. The gospel has the power to save anyone, and we see that in the life of Paul. Paul refers to himself in his letters as the chief of sinners. Paul admitted, I was the worst of the worst. I was the enemy of the church. He even called himself the least of the apostles, which we don't agree with that assessment, obviously. But he understood and never forgot the power of God's grace in his own life. No doubt, Paul can remember, could remember, the screams of the men and the women as he drugged them from their homes to see them put to death for professing Christ as Lord. No doubt, Paul remembered how he stood and held Stephen's coat the day he was stoned, calling on the name of Jesus as he died. And that is why Paul writes so powerfully and so passionately about the grace and power of God in people's lives because he had profound personal insight into what it meant, what the grace of God was, and what it was not. And I feel compelled to remind us tonight that God does not just forgive us of our sins, but he removes them from us. Paul was no longer accountable for his grievances as Saul of Tarsus, but he became an apostle of Jesus Christ because God saves completely and to the uttermost. Amen. And that is our testimony as well. The second thing I just could not get away from as I studied and prepared for this series is how uniquely equipped Paul was for God's purpose in his life. We may look at his violent history with the church and think that was quite a stretch for God to use Saul of Tarsus in this way. He went from being the enemy of the church to its greatest proponent. He went from persecuting the church, from being the enemy of the Christian church to being an expert on what it means to be a Christian. A complete turnaround. Only God can do a work like that in people's lives. And you and I are witness to that. You and I all know somebody that if it had been up to us, we would have thought there's no way that they can change. There's no way that their life can be turned around. And yet they stand as a testimony, as Paul did, to the grace of God. And here's the point I want to make with this tonight, that what you and I may think disqualifies us from the calling and purpose for our lives that God has could in fact be exactly your greatest source of impact in the kingdom of God. And Paul is a perfect example of that. He understood in a way that few people could what a leap it would be for the Jews to embrace Jesus as Messiah. He understood what a leap it would be for them to take in the Gentiles and make them equally a part of God's family. He understood the tension that the church was facing as the Gentiles were experiencing the power of God for the first time and coming into the church. Paul understood the law better than most people. He was taught by one of the greatest teachers of Jewish 
law. And so that means that Paul understood what Jesus did on the cross in a way that few people could at that time. Paul had compassion and grace for those who had once been on the outside of the Christian church. He had empathy for those who struggled with the acceptance of a new covenant. He could speak to both groups, to both sides of the issue in a way that I believe nobody else could. Because he was an elite Jew, but he was also the enemy of the church. Never give up on anybody. No matter what they've done. Because it could very well be that the depth that they came from in sin, the grace that they receive from God is what propels them powerfully forward into their calling in Christ. Amen. And so tonight we'll begin with the books of First and Second Corinthians. And I'm just going to tell you right now that true to form, we are not going in order. That's not what we do here. Because Tom and I have a very sophisticated spiritual process of casting lots. When we divide up a series, and it usually goes like this. I pick first, and he gets what's left. That's just how it is. And so next week, I told him, I said, you're doing Romans, because I'm not touching it. That book blows my mind. You can do it. So philosophical. But I wanted to teach on Paul's letters to Corinth, because I feel especially attached to this place called Corinth, because I was able to visit it twice And it was a profound experience for me both times. The first time I went was as a Bible college student. And we went on a trip. Uh, It was more academic in nature. It was not necessarily a ministry or a missions trip. But we were trying to retrace Paul's steps. And so we went to Athens. And we started on the island of Crete. We went to Titus' church. It was so amazing. Like, it's still there, you guys. We visited the Fair Havens where Paul was shipwrecked. And so it was just the trip of a lifetime. And I'm still thankful to this day for the sacrifices that my parents made so that I could have such an experience. But my dad was especially enthusiastic about this. As my pastor, as my quiz coach, knowing that I was going to see the place where some of these verses were actually written that I had memorized. But the place he was the most excited for me to see was the city of Corinth. And I remember so clearly the gleam in his eye when he said, Chris, when you see the ruins of those temples in Corinth, remember you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You talk about having a moment. It was amazing. So there I am. I'm in Corinth. And on that hill behind me is actually one of the temples that I'm referring to. Ben, can I see the other picture? My other picture. Okay. So I'm on the left in the back. The the person that's very exuberant in the blue shirt is my brother-in-law, Michael Cobb. He was with me on that trip. And doesn't that make sense that he is standing so dramatically like that in Corinth? But see how dwarfed we are next to these pillars? Like you see them in pictures and then you get up to them and you realize how massive these these pagan temples were. But I don't know if you can see me. I flexed for my dad because I wanted him to know I remembered what he said, that I was the temple of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, I just had to show you some of these 
pictures rather than getting them off of Google. I thought, hey, I have my own. All right. So uh, some things I want you to consider about ancient Corinth now as we head into the letters themselves. That Corinth is located about 50 miles west of Athens. It was one of the largest and most important cities in ancient Greece. Corinth was a place of great wealth. It was a commercial city because it was very near to a body of water. Corinth was home to a diverse population of people, Romans, Greeks, and Jews, all called Corinth home. We know that Paul visited there at least two times. The first time he stayed about a year and a half. The second time he stayed about three months. And it was during his second visit that the book of Romans was written. More about that next week. In Acts 18, we read that it is in Corinth that Paul meets the power couple, husband and wife teaching team, Priscilla and Aquila. They were both key leaders in the early church, and Paul met them in Corinth. Corinth was one of the most important cult centers of that time, with temples that were dedicated to the goddess of love, Epaphrodite. Corinth was also famous for hosting games similar to those in Olympia. So they had an actual arena there and more about that later. And so the ruins of the ancient city of Corinth are truly incredible. When you consider that these structures, like the one in my picture, have been there for thousands of years and that much of them still remains, it is truly Uh, mind-blowing. But of the ruins in Corinth, from my perspective, those temple ruins dominate the landscape. And I say that to say that Corinth was a very religious place. It was enveloped, though, in deep spiritual darkness. They worshipped false gods in ways that are immoral. In fact, the extent of the depravity of their practices is something that I don't even feel comfortable explaining to you from behind the sacred desk. But what I will tell you is it was basically glorified prostitution. I don't say that to you to make you uncomfortable or to make this awkward, but I do say that to you for you to understand who Paul is talking to about immorality, okay? So Corinth was... Not a great place, probably not your top pick to start a Christian church. I don't know. Maybe it was for Paul. I think he thought about it differently, most likely. But it's pretty ironic to me that the focal point of what is left of Corinth, the picture that I chose to show you, is the ruins of the temple to Apollo, the god of light. And I find that pretty ironic because that place was really a pretty dark place, spiritually. And yet, we know there was a church there. It was a church that was planted and pastored by Paul. In Acts 18, verses 9 through 10, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city, talking about Corinth, who are my people. Paul might have seen an affluent pagan city, but the Spirit told him, There are believers in the city of Corinth. And so God called Paul to speak boldly in a place that was driven by trade and pagan worship. And the church in Corinth, we know, grew very quickly. And within a few years, it was actually a large congregation. 
There were some Jewish converts we know, but for the most part, the church was made up of Gentiles. This is very significant to us because it means the church in Corinth was mostly made up of new converts, people that were new to Christianity, and that is very important. So let us look at 1 Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth was actually written from the city of Ephesus, and I think that's so cool because when we study Ephesians, that's who he's talking to in the book of Ephesians. But it was written around 53, 55 AD. And you see, Paul would write these letters to address issues within church congregations when he was away. And men like Timothy and Titus would check in on these churches as Paul was traveling other places. They would report to Paul, let him know maybe some of the issues, some of the changes happening within the church. And then Paul, because he could not be everywhere at once, would write letters in response to things that he knew needed addressed as the spiritual father, if you will, of that congregation. And so in the case of this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing as their pastor and an overseer of a church that is frankly struggling. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 10 and 11, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Hey, there's a female involved here. I love it. That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So Paul very simply opens this letter by saying, you've been called to be saints together. Paul teaches about unity and connection to the body of Christ right out of the gate. He puts it out there like, this is what you need to know. What's going on right now should not be going on. It's not God's will for you to be at odds with each other. But because Paul's love for them, he challenges them in three specific areas of sinful behavior. Three themes, if you will, for 1 Corinthians. The first one is moral purity. He calls them out and he challenges them to live a morally pure life. Now, given what we know, what we've established already about that culture that those saints came from, it shouldn't surprise us too much that that behavior found its way into the church. People didn't get it all fixed when they got the Holy Spirit and got baptized. Their issues followed them into the church. The influence of their formal life, I would say even their former religious practices, God forbid, followed them into the church. And so Paul said, oh no, no. You don't get a free pass because that's what you're used to. You've got to put on the new man. You have to put on Christ. Paul teaches them that the sins of the body were also sins of the soul. It mattered how they conducted themselves because their actual bodies, their physical bodies now belonged to God. They were, in fact, God's temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 through 20 say, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? Think about the image, imagery they saw every day, surrounded by impressive, foreboding structures. You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Thank God. You don't belong to yourself anymore, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It was a big deal. It was a big deal to Paul. It was a big deal for those people to come out of that spiritual darkness and to live morally pure lives. And that is why we will never teach that anything other than the sanctity and plan of God in marriage is acceptable. Because it's that big of a deal to God. Because our bodies belong to him. Number two. He talks to them about the idea of spiritual freedom. And and challenges them to safeguard this new spiritual freedom that they have found now that they are in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 12 says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul is telling them to consider the use of this newfound freedom and its impact on fellow believers, the influence of their decisions and their faith on their fellow believers. He reminds them of their connection to one another in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I serve you because I want other people to be saved. Because I care about the salvation of other people. I'm not going to just live for my own desires anymore. But even in terms of my spiritual reality, I consider other people. I defer to what actually can help them. Their faith, Paul was saying, impacted other people. Their freedom in Christ was not to be used for their own indulgences. Rather, Paul calls them to a disciplined life. That is not something you hear taught very often, but it's true. He compares their walk with God to the training of an athlete. That's scary to me because I'm not athletic. So, oh God, I don't know if I like this. But because Paul made tents on the side, I love this. I I had never thought about this before. But because we know Paul was a tent maker on the side to supplement his income, because he didn't want to take any more than he needed to from the local churches, he would have sold tents to people who came in town into Corinth for those Olympic Games. And so drawing that analogy because he knew exactly what they had seen and understood about those games in verses 24 and 25, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable 
And one thing that I thought was just so amazing is this crown, this wreath that Paul is referring to that they would win if they won the race was actually stalks of celery formed together to make a wreath. Are you kidding me? I would train and do all that for celery? For a wreath that essentially wilts the next day? For me, running is a punishment. That's what I tell Tom. I do it sometimes. I do it because I know I should take care. I am the temple. Hallelujah. But I come in and I'm like, I hate that. That was awful. I, don't, I didn't do anything to deserve that today. I just, I don't understand why these athletes would do that. There's no gold involved. There's no major prize involved. And yet Paul draws that analogy that they know they understand very well to say, these athletes live such a disciplined life. You see the things that they commit to doing and not to doing for a crown that literally begins to fall apart the very next day. And he makes that analogy to say, how much more discipline should you and I have in place in our lives for the crown that we are reaching for that will not perish? And that's why it's okay to believe as a Christian that discipline is necessary in your life in some form to make sure that you are saved, to make sure that you are putting eternity first and what is going to last forever, your ultimate priority. The third thing is spiritual gifts. He implores them to use spiritual gifts to serve one another. Now, it's very interesting to me. Think about all that I've told you about this place and how wild these people were, and we're still being even in the church, that this was a very spiritual congregation. The gifts of the Spirit were in operation in such a way that Paul teaches on it for the last three chapters. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in a service because these people who have come out of such spiritual darkness are totally willing and sensitive to the Spirit of God now. It's so now everybody's sharing their gifts over top of each other and there's all this confusion and Paul says, Stop it! God's a God of order. And so we did a series last fall called Gifted on Paul's teachings on the gift of the Spirit. But the point we want to make tonight is this. Paul made it clear to them the purpose of the gifts is to edify the church. They're not meant to elevate people. They're not meant to make you look better or more spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 is, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good or for the benefit of everyone. And so we understand, though, because they came from this spiritual cult culture of the day, that that would have been a foreign concept to them. You see, these cults focused solely on the individual. They were not about the group. They did not celebrate the group. And, you know, think about what you know about cults. They thrive on what is secretive, right? On what is private. And so Paul is teaching a brand new concept that with all of these spiritual experiences come connection to other people. It's for the benefit of other people. It's not to make you feel special. It comes with this accountability to the group to say what you're doing and not doing matters to the church as a whole. 
And yet Paul challenged them to be inclusive with each other. It was the opposite of where they came from, coming from that pagan cult culture. He said, no, now all of these spiritual experiences, the, the growth you're having in Christ is not meant for you to just enjoy it and feel special because of it, but it's meant to be shared, to build up the church. Verse 25, he says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And so as we wrap up 1 Corinthians, I think it is so amazing to realize that in each of the three teaching points that I shared with you, and to be sure there are many more, Paul masterfully uses imagery that they identify with very specifically. Imagery that's lost on you and I as people who live in the Ohio Valley. We do not have temples. Trust me. We don't have anything close to that in the United States of America. We don't have temples. We don't come, most of us, from a pagan cult culture. We're not athletes. I mean, some of us are, but we're not. None of us are Olympians, right? None of us go to the games on a regular basis. And yet, Paul essentially does what he talks about in chapter 9, verse 22. I have become all things to all people. That by all means I might save some, I do it all. I make all of these analogies. I make the gospel as easy to understand as I can, as relatable to whoever I'm talking to as possible. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. What an incredible example to you and I. That sometimes we do have to be sensitive and aware of what people are not understanding, of what they can understand, what they can relate to, maybe based on another church experience. That Paul, in fact, exemplifies that in 1 Corinthians many times. And then quickly to 2 Corinthians as we hasten to our app time. Paul wrote the second letter about a year after the first letter. And Titus brought Paul an update from Corinth while Paul was in Macedonia. And so this letter is very different from the first letter. And the main purpose of 2 Corinthians is to defend Paul's ministry. Apparently a member of the Corinthian church rose up against Paul and literally insulted him, spoke against him very publicly. And so Paul, surprisingly, in my opinion, just leaves Corinth. He's trying to just keep the peace. He leaves. He's very hurt. He's very upset that this very prominent saint, some commentators believe it was actually maybe a member of the church leadership team that spoke against Paul in such a way in front of the congregation. But there's one central theme, and this this is why I tell you this, because this is so powerful to realize, that the main crux of what Paul shares in 2 Corinthians is the connection between Suffering in this life and the power of God's spirit in your life. Paul begins by saying in chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all of our affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so through the first half of the book, Paul does not hide the fact that he is very hurt and very disappointed by what went down the last time he was in Corinth. He goes on to even explain that the hurt and the opposition continued as he traveled 
In Asia, he experienced something that was very difficult. We, we do not know what it was, but Paul is acknowledging to this church, I am going through some stuff, you guys. I am broken. I am hurt. I am discouraged. And so Paul does well as their pastor and their leader to not hide from them the fact that hard times are going to come to all of us. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we get a free pass. It doesn't mean that we won't be mistreated. It doesn't mean that we won't be misunderstood as Paul had been. There would be difficult challenges ahead. And yet the difficulty that Paul was experiencing and had experienced in the church he was writing to, he says in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay, fragile, weak vessels, that's us. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Think about where Paul's at in his life and ministry. But not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then in chapter 12, we find that powerful passage that we love so much where Paul makes reference to that thorn in his flesh. There was something in his life. We don't know what it was and it really doesn't matter. There was something that Paul had asked God to change. Some situation that he wanted deliverance from. And yet that experience gave Paul such powerful insight for you and I when he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, and only then, I am strong. Weakness is an opportunity for grace to work in our lives. And throughout scripture, we see this played out in the heroes of our faith. What did they all have in common? They had human weakness. They had a need. They had a sickness. They had a fear. They had a circumstance that they could not handle on their own. And the grace of God showed up in their lives. And that is what we celebrate when we read their stories, that they were not blessed by God. The grace of God was not imparted to them in spite of their weakness, but rather it was because of their weakness. For only when I am weak, I can be made strong in Christ. Amen. And so this brings us to our app time, which we will do quickly. I would like for you to share with someone in close proximity, if you can do it safely and comfortably, I leave that up to you, to share a time when you needed God's grace in your life. All the time is not an answer. It's like something as specific as you feel comfortable being. I'm only going to give you a couple minutes. So talk fast, open up quick. Here we go.
All right. I'll let you conclude what you're saying and invite you to stand with me. It is 8.15. We've got to go. But I just want to make this point real quick as we conclude that Corinth looks very different than it did in Paul's day. I was encouraged the second time I was there by the person that was giving us a tour to actually look up what these ruins represented, what they looked like at the time that Paul would have been living. And I can't imagine how intimidating it might have been to some of those saints to preach and teach Jesus in front of these incredible structures, so massive. The uh, history will tell you that those pillars were actually overlaid in gold at the Acropolis there in Athens and the Parthenon, that they were that elaborate. They weren't just piles of rubble like they are right now, and yet this Christian church turned the world upside down, and they didn't even have a building. They did not have a structure at all let alone these unbelievable temples. And so the powerful reality to me is that while those pagan religions maybe dominated the landscape at that time, they no longer do. Christianity and its influence is without peer in that part of the world. And all that is left is the rubble that stands there from those worshiping of the false gods of those temples. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God does not dwell in temples made with hands, Paul said. And we are members of the Lord's church. We are members of one another. And we are running a race. A race for eternity and what will last forever. Amen. Makes me feel good about what I have. That it will outlast everything else. And that eternity is mine through Jesus Christ. I will be with him forever someday. And I don't have to guess how to do that. I've got it right here in the word of the Lord. Thank God for people like Paul who wrote it down for us. Amen? Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, Thanks for listening.